This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jim. I'm one of your pastors. It is a gift to be with you this morning. Uh, Before we jump in, just want to highlight what we're doing for Advent. This is our second week of Advent where we celebrate the arrival of Christ. And one of the things we do every year is we have some outward-focused initiatives as we experience the generosity of God in Christ. We get to participate in generosity. So we take an offering every year that goes all outward, and each week we're highlighting the different organizations where that Advent offering will be going towards. So this week, um, I want to highlight AZ Reach, which is an organization that works in schools, schools that are often overlooked, and uh, amongst some of the kids who are struggling the most in those schools, they do mentoring and tutoring and uh, Bible studies and really pour into their life. And so uh, part of our Advent offering, a third of our Advent offering will be going to AZ Reach. So if you want to give to the Advent offering, there's a link um, on the screen, Uh, whatever that thing's called again. uh, What is it called? QR code. QR code, yeah. Squiggly thing. Um, Also, we have the Christmas ornaments. Uh, in the lobby, and that'll have a link to where you can go. Along with giving, we're also on these cards calling you to prayer and to action. Uh, The action for this week is to identify the names of all of your neighbors and to choose one of them and bring them some sort of treat. And then to pray is to pray for the flourishing of the city. So with that in mind, let's do that now. God, we pray uh, for the whole city that we are a part of, and all these overlooked and unexpected places that they would be places where you bring the gospel of peace through the people in this room, that you bring flourishing to the schools that AZ Reach is connected to, to all of our neighborhoods, and that you would be seen and glorified as the one who is the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well... This morning, as I've already mentioned, it's the second week of Advent. And the theme for Advent is peace on earth. Last week, John talked about uh, peace to the world. And this week, our theme is peace to the city. You probably heard that language before. We've talked often when we talk about the vision of this church. What are we about? We look at Jeremiah 29 and see how he calls God's people to seek the shalom, the peace, the flourishing of the city. And we see that as a calling for us as well. Something we've talked about in this church before is uh, that this Loop 202 area is kind of what we view as our area, that God has given us some responsibility to engage. And how we want to see every place within that map, have some believer who is seeking the flourishing of that place. That's our prayer. That's our vision, to seek the peace and the flourishing of the city. But here's the question. How does God bring peace to the city? You say, that sounds nice. But how does God bring to the city, peace to the city? Let's do a thought experiment. 
if you were going to put together a team that you would assemble to bring peace to the city, who would you choose to be on that team? Who would you choose? Think about it for a moment. Would you choose doctors, city council members, that really talented friend of yours who seems to just be good at everything but spends their whole life on pickleball? <laughs> who are you choose? Who would you choose? Let me give you my list. The team to seek the peace of the city. Number one, a devastated middle-aged man. Number two, a landscape architect who designs parks. Number three, three blonde brothers with the last name Hanson. <laughs> Number four, an English teacher who looks like Andre 3000. <laughs> Number five, an NFL defensive lineman. And number six, Mariah Carey. <laughs> That's my team that I would assemble to seek the peace of the city. And I know that a bunch of you think, okay, I know you're weird, Jim, but even for you, that's a weird list. There are strange and unexpected names on there, which is perfect. Because as we look at Luke 2 and dive into the text today that talks about the birth of Christ, what we see is that there's a lot of unexpected going on there. That God is bringing peace to the city through an unexpected king and through unexpected places and unexpected people. The unexpected king is bringing peace through unexpected places and unexpected people. So let's go ahead and look at two, uh, Luke 2, starting in verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. We've got a group of shepherds who are standing out in the field, just doing their job, and an angel shows up and says, do not be afraid. And there's a reason for it, because when we think of angels in our day, the little sweet paintings of little fat babies who play harps, that's not what it's like. It's powerful, soldier-like figures. And so he needs to say, do not be afraid. And he says, I, will, I bring to you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and in a manger. The one angel announces the message of this Messiah, of this king who's coming. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts, in other words, an army of angels, began praising God and, and singing, maybe more like chanting, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom his, on whom his favor rests. How does God bring peace to the city? Well, he brings peace to the city by sending an unexpected king. This group of shepherds out there minding their own business hears an announcement from this army of angels with language that was, just had thick meaning to it. When it talks about the Messiah or in some of the translations, Christ, this isn't Jesus's last name. It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ and then they had little baby Jesus Christ. But that language would bring to mind this Yahweh's anointed one, 
this kingly figure, this rescuer, this revolutionary who would come and deliver God's people from suffering and captivity. And it was especially powerful as they were under the captivity of the Roman Empire at the time. And for centuries had been longing for one to come in and to make things right. Peace on earth. When they're singing about that, they're not thinking about the nice little Hallmark cards and Christmas ornaments that say, peace on earth. It's just a cheap sentimentality. But what it would bring to mind is this rich Hebrew concept of shalom that John talked about last week. Peace, but this rich peace that has the connotation of holistic flourishing, where we flourish in relation to God and with one another and with the non-human creation, the physical world, and, and peace with ourselves, things the way that they were supposed to be. And the only time that that was fully experienced was in the garden, in creation, And it's the way that God made it, the world, to be. But sin enters the world, the fall, the curse, and we get alienated from God, alienated from one another, and we need one to come in and to rescue. And these shepherds would have known the words in Isaiah, the words all throughout Scripture that was talking about the day that one was going to come and make things right bring justice and peace and restore everything that's broken. But here's what they were probably expecting. A mighty warrior king who would bring shalom, who would take up the throne in Jerusalem and bring peace to the city and then to the whole kingdom and then to the nations. A powerful, authoritative king, someone who would walk in the room with a commanding presence, and then go out into battle with a bloody sword and come back victorious, establishing peace and defeating enemies. That's what they expected. But what they're getting in Jesus is an unexpected king. Found a humble king, born in a manger. Then he grows up and he starts wandering around giving sermons about birds and figs picking fights with religious leaders, hanging out with the sick and sinners, and ultimately with a strategy to bring peace through an act of violence that would happen to him. You know, when I think of what they were looking for in a Messiah, I I like to think that they were looking for a G.I. Joe. Favorite Christmas present ever. What I always asked for Christmas was G.I. Joe's. I was trying to build a whole platoon, not a platoon, a whole army of G.I. Joes and was always asking for him because the G.I. Joe was the iconic figure of that muscular, tough, commanding presence who would come in and make things right for the nation. They wanted the messianic G.I. Joe. That's what they were expecting. In the winter of 1992, I thought I had a chance to get some G.I. Joes. My grandpa was coming to town. And uh, when he arrived, this man who had, had so, who I knew as this strong, bold man named Leo. I mean, you can't but be strong with Leo. But what I found was a devastated 
middle-aged man. His wife had just walked out on him, just totally disappeared. He had no place to go for Christmas, so he showed up with our family, and I could see a little glimpse of something in him. Anytime he would open up a book and start reading it, and I kind of thought that book was the Bible, and I kind of wanted to ask him about it, but I kind of didn't want him to like preach to me, right? But I did, I asked him. And then what I realized is I had created a problem. I had ruined my opportunity to get G.I. Joes for Christmas because in asking for G.I. Joes and then in asking about the Bible, I open up my Christmas present and this is what he gave me. <laughs> the New Adventure Bible. He could sense my disappointment and he, I'm sure, said something about how You know, Jesus is the better hero than G.I. Joe, that sort of thing. But I distinctly remember him opening up to the book of Isaiah, his favorite book of the Bible. And I don't remember a lot of what he said, but I really remember him reading Isaiah 53 and giving a picture of a hero, of a rescuer that I had never seen before. He was pierced for our our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And him telling me about this is Jesus, the hero who Israel was waiting for and who is the rescuer of us. And I remember thinking how odd and how unique it was that this hero would, would be one who could heal others by his very own wounds, who could bring peace through violence that happened to himself. And it was strange to me, and it was strange to God's people at that time to get the type of Messiah, the type of king that they got in Jesus, because he came in such unexpected and strange ways. And the very quirks, the very strange things about Jesus were the very things that were his instruments of peace the way that he brought us peace. Rather than being a king who gathered an army of valiant soldiers, he gathered a platoon of disheveled fishermen and tax collectors and launched a kingdom that welcomes unimpressive people like you and me. Rather than living in an extravagant palace, he slept under the stars, no place to lay his head as he was on a mission to bring us home. Rather than demanding a team of servants follow him and make his life a life of luxury, he was the type of king who took the humble position and washed the feet of his followers. Rather than only spending time with the ritually pure priest in the temple, he moved towards lepers and prostitutes with healing and forgiveness, giving them a seat of honor for those who walked in shame. Rather than launching a bloody revolution where he kills his enemies with the sword, he came declaring his love for his enemies and then conquered them by dying for them and shedding his very own blood. Instead of taking their life, he gives them life. This king was entirely unexpected and his type of peace is beautiful and unexpectedly good. How does he bring peace to the city? He brings peace to the city by sending an unexpected king 
with unexpected ways that reconciles us to God, that reconciles us to one another, and that will one day restore all that is broken and messed up and touched by sin in the world. He is the unexpected king who brings peace. But how? How does he work? In unexpected ways. And one of those unexpected ways that we see here is by moving toward and working within unexpected places. Let's go back to verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometown and to register. So Joseph also went to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. They were there, and the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's a lot of familiar stuff here. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you saw the little nativity sets and you have a vague sense that Jesus is around some animals for some reason, and uh, they're pretty excited about it. One of those people is Mary. Probably one of the other ones is Joseph. You're familiar with the fact that they took a 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, from their hometown, to participate in a census that was decreed by Caesar to, so that he could figure out who was all in his kingdom and tax those people. You know that while they're there, Mary gives birth to Jesus, that there's no place in the inn, that Jesus is born in a manger, all familiar, right? But something that we often overlook are the places that are mentioned here. We, we look at these first verses where it talks about the Roman world and the governor of Syria and Nazareth and Galilee and this, the fact that places are being named over and over and over again. We look at that as filler, as backdrop, as just insignificant details to the big story that is going on here. We in the West tend to overlook the significance of place, but God doesn't. God sees places and decides to work through even unexpected places. Likely in the West, the reason why we overlook place could have something to do with the fact that our history is a pretty short history as far as country goes, or maybe it's because we move around a lot. But when we're in school and we're taught what a noun is, it's what? A people, place, thing. In our world, we tend to say people matter and things are good. You should get a lot of those things. But place is just this insignificant backdrop, but it matters to God. One of the first things you see in Scripture is that God is a placemaker. In Genesis 1, he creates the world as a place for humans and all of life to, to flourish. He makes a place with attentiveness and care. And over and over again, you see his attentiveness to place in 
calling, uh, creating a city, Jerusalem, and a temple where he brings his peace, where he is at work. God cares about place and is deliberately choosing to work through un, seemingly insignificant and unexpected places, and one of those places is Bethlehem. It's a small, seemingly insignificant town in Judea. A modest village, probably a few hundred people. It's not a major urban center like Jerusalem. It's not a major political power like the cities in Rome. It's a blue-collar, agrarian place where you're going to see camels and donkeys, simple brick and mud homes, not a glorious temple, but maybe a few scattered synagogues outside of the big, significant place of Jerusalem. Probably overlooked as a pass-through place by people on a journey. See, if Jesus was born in Arizona in this time, rather than a manger in Bethlehem, I think he would have been born in a garage in Eloy, Arizona. <laughs> that kind of in-between place. The place that people look past and look through. But God does it intentionally, decides that he is going to work through a place that other people do not see. Micah 5, long before Jesus arrives, 5.2 uh, gives this vision of God working through Bethlehem. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who is the ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. God decided long ago that David would be born in Bethlehem. And then the one who was going to come in the lineage of David to be the true Messiah, the king who was going to make things right, was also going to be born in Bethlehem. And it was an intentional thing that God did. On his peacemaking mission, he chose that that would be the place where he launches the incarnation of the Messiah, the king who comes to bring peace on earth. He could have chosen Rome. He could have chosen Jerusalem. He could have chosen Jericho. He could have chosen any of the other places that carried significance to others, but that became the sacred place that he used. And he still is taking the seemingly overlooked, insignificant places and working through them today. One of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, says, there are no unsacred places there are only sacred places and desecrated places. In other words, if God created everything, every place, then it belongs to him and therefore is holy, is therefore a place where he can bring his shalom, that he can work within. And the question really is, do we see it as a holy place? Do we steward it as a holy place? Do we engage it as a place where God will show up or do we ignore it and therefore desecrate it? When you look at your living room, do you see holy ground? When you are in your cubicle, do you see a potential temple where the presence of God can be at work? When you walk over to your neighbor's house, like you're going to do this week, do you see that as a sacred pilgrimage? Or do you just overlook the places that God cares for? Let me tell you about a sacred place. 
in Chandler, Arizona, long ago, a landscape architect designed a park called Mountain View Park. And that place was a place of refuge for me. There were a few years where my family lived in the nice neighborhood, one that you would call peaceful, but we were experiencing anything but peace in that place. My home was a place of turbulence where there was violence, there were affairs, there was substance abuse. It was always tense. It felt like you were walking on eggshells. Then the school had all these learning disabilities and struggled uh, to learn in school and always felt like a failure. And these two places were just places of struggle. But right in the middle of those two places was this park, Mountain View Park. And it was a place of refuge for me where I would spend most of my time. One of the main places where I would go is this basketball court, the one that's on the screen here. And if you were to look at the pickup games that we had, you would not describe them as peaceful or shalom or sacred. (laughs) Because I was an angry kid who was gathering other angry kids. And on this basketball court, we had some of the most intense pickup games. You would have thought, as we're working out our anger issues, that we had a quota that a fist fight should break out every 12 minutes. If you were to listen in, you would think that we are inventing new profanities on this basketball court. But occasionally, there would be an interruption. You could look down the road, and you could see three brothers, blonde-haired brothers, with the last name of Hanson walking down the street. It wasn't these guys. That was the the old band. But they were three brothers, (laughs) and their last name was Hanson. One of them is Devin Hanson, who's a part of our church. And they would come, and they'd participate in our games, and there was something different about them. Couldn't quite put your finger on it, but we respected them. And the oldest brother was our age. His name was Dustin. Probably still is Dustin. Doubt he changed it. And he would get, he'd participate in our games, and it was odd because he wouldn't talk trash. He wouldn't, in a, in a place where disrespect was common, he was encouraging people, he was kind. But he also didn't seem intimidated by us. There was a security that he carried with him. And when he was on the court, he would mention little things about prayer, about his youth group. You got a sense that he was a Christian. You had a sense that he was bringing the peace of Christ to that basketball court. And when they were present, it would lower the temperature of hostility on that court. Wouldn't have described it then, but those brothers saw that as a sacred place where the peace of Christ could be present. There was another part of the park designed by an architect, a landscape architect, this group of trees that I would always run to and, uh, It was a perfect place to get an escape from the world. There was one day I needed that escape from the world when my stepdad left a message saying that he was going to take his own life. My mom gathered my brothers and said that we all need to call a psychic, and I knew there was something not right about that. So I ran over to the park, found my little set of trees, and I started praying. The first time I can remember really praying, like not dinner table prayers, and just pleading with God to bring my stepdad back. 
And I remember just experiencing the comfort and the presence of God in that place. And then about an hour later, saw his geoprism pull into the driveway. I don't know what that landscape architect's background was, if he followed Christ, but if he wanted to be used by God for the shalom of the city, he may not know it, but he carved out a little sacred place for me in that moment. And so the question is, what is your place? God works through unexpected places like Bethlehem and basketball courts. And as we pull up the map of our city, what we know is that there are places in here that are going to be overlooked every day unless the people in this room have eyes to see those as the unexpected places where God can show up and do his work and bring shalom. Unexpected places to make room for the unexpected king. But there's one missing element, and that's the unexpected people that he uses. Let's go to verse 17. When they had seen him, that's the shepherds. They had gone, they saw Jesus, they were spending time with him. And it said, uh, so when they had seen him, they, they spent time with Jesus. They, they, they lived out that nativity scene. But do you ever think what happens after that? Like that nativity scene, those people just didn't stand there forever looking at Jesus. Eventually Mary is like, okay, you gotta go now. We have to like take care of this baby. What happens next? Here's what happens. It says, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds go out into the world and they start proclaiming that the king has come. The one who brings peace, who brings shalom, who restores us to God, who restores us to one another. He has come. And believe it or not, he's coming as a baby. And they are the most unexpected people you could probably imagine. Why would God choose the shepherds to be his evangelists, his first ministers, when there were priests and scholars and political leaders around? It's because God brings his peace through unexpected people. The shepherds were an occupation. Being a shepherd was an occupation that had a serious stigma to it. You often couldn't participate in worship in the temple because you spent your day dealing with animal carcasses and were considered unclean. They were poor on the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. They had a reputation of being thieves. There was such a lack of trust that there were times when they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. You can imagine being a shepherd sitting on the outskirts of society and the way that people look at you with suspicion, with a lack of respect. But when God looks at them, he says, these are the very people that I want to use to announce the good news of the King, the Messiah, who's come to make things right. How does God bring peace? In the birth of Christ, you look all over the place and you see him using the most unexpected people. Not just shepherds, but Mary. Pregnant teenage girl looked at with suspicion. 
the magi, the wise men. It is weird that they are there. They're these strange people who don't know anything about what's happening in Israel and the God of Israel who are just these astrologers from Iran who show up. He's going to use them. Anna, a widow who had been a widow for 84 years, was likely in her late 90s or 100s in the dwindling days of her life. She gets used as a prophetess in the temple to announce that Jesus is coming. Caesar Augustus, the arrogant first emperor of Rome, considering himself the king of the world, launches a census to see how big his empire is, to get some money from those people, and to glory in the fact that he is the king of the whole world. But what he doesn't know is that in launching that census, he is setting up the circumstances that bring Jesus into Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, where the true king is launched and the Messiah is born. When you look around the birth narrative, you see that God is on a mission to bring peace to a sin-stained world, but he chooses to use the obscure and unexpected and unqualified people like you and me. One of the biggest lies the enemy can use, can tell us, is that God can't use you. You may say, I'm not the type of person that God uses. My life is too messy. It's too complicated, too busy. Maybe later God can, but not now. Well, no no matter how complicated and messy things are, let me just say, it's not more than what Mary was going through. And God used her and the shepherds. How does God bring his peace? Through unexpected people. Let me tell you about them. In the summer of 1994, I made a decision that would change the trajectory of my life forever a decision that would change my life forever. In the heat of an Arizona summer, I decided that I was going to marry Mariah Carey. It was just (laughs) a plan that I made that I committed myself to in the summer of 1994. This was right between when I was leaving elementary school and was going to junior high, and I figured I had some time that summer, and I needed to figure out how I was going to make this happen. And after spending months of planning, realized, probably not going to work. She's 13 years older than me. There's an age gap, so it's probably not going to work. Crazy thing is, she eventually married a guy like 13 years younger than her, so that wasn't the factor, right? There were a lot of other factors, but that wasn't the one. So I went into junior high discouraged, feeling like a failure because my big mission was thrown off. And I show up to my sixth grade English class, and I look over to the row next to me, and there's one of the Hanson brothers. I'm like, cool, a Hanson brother. But two or three people in front of the Hanson brother was a girl who I thought looked like Mariah Carey, like a young Mariah Carey. 
And I said, maybe this is the substitute. Maybe this is what I should be setting my sights on. My teacher, strange guy, interesting guy. I think he just wanted to put everybody in their place in the first week of school. And he would take us all out into a field and challenge us all to a foot race. And he said that there had never been a student who beat him. The young Mariah Carey beat him in a foot race. And I was like, it must happen. This was meant to be. So I committed myself to trying to get to know her. But in my attempt to get to know her, I got to know somebody else, Mr. Williams. He was our English teacher who dressed and acted like Andre 3000. And he was strict and he did not like people talking in his class. And I kept trying to talk in his class. So he kept putting me in lunch detention. And as I was in lunch detention, he got to know me and I got to know him a little bit. We had conversations. They took an interest in my life. And I began to confide in him and share some of the struggles that were happening in our home and some of the things that discouraged me. And he seemed to offer wisdom that didn't have a human origin. He seemed to to offer wisdom of someone who had been in the presence of God. And I think he saw something that I didn't see. Years later, I would kind of make the connection. But he started coming to my basketball games. And at the end of the game, when, when kids go to their dads and the dad starts encouraging them about the game that they played, I would often kind of just wander around. And he showed up to the games and he would find me in those moments and speak life-giving, encouraging words to me and giving me a, a sense of a, a fatherly presence in that moment. He never outright shared the gospel or mentioned exactly that he was a Christian because of the constraints that he had as a teacher. But he would drop little hints about prayer and his church and things like that. And I would actually start going to his class, even when I didn't have detention during lunch, to get wisdom from him. But soon I stopped going because, again, remember, I have a mission I need to fulfill to marry the young pseudo-Mariah Carey. And I needed all the time I could devoted two years of my life to it. And after two years, I succeeded. And it created a two-week relationship (laughs) in junior high. And this relationship, uh, you know, as I got to know her, I got to hear about the painful things in her story that seemed to overlap with mine and how she carried this deep sense of sadness with her at all times. Eventually, she moved to a different state, but my ambitions uh, did not change. I said, well, I'm going to figure out a different way to make her my wife. In the summer of 1996, I made a decision that would change the course of my life forever. I knew I needed to make some changes in my life, so I decided that I was going to become the best defensive lineman in the state of Arizona in football. It's a decision I made. The problem was, is that I just wasn't the best defensive lineman. (laughs) But I grew up with a guy, a friend. We played basketball together uh, on the summer AAU teams by the name of Terrell Suggs. He's an NFL defensive lineman. 
Hall of Famer now. At that time, he was just Terrell. But he was the best defensive lineman in the state. In our freshman year, he was at a rival school. But anytime I saw him at a party or a barbecue, I was always trying to get tips and pointers from him so that I could be the best defensive lineman and not him. (laughs) Turns out he was just better at football. That's what the (laughs) secret was. But there was a period in time when he was going to a Bible study and talking a lot about Jesus and kept flipping every conversation we were having to Jesus. I don't know where he's at in the faith now, but in that time, he was. And the only reason I was interested is I was kind of wondering if like maybe from the Bible, he's getting some like motivational secrets that are making him good or some special favor from God because he reads the Bible. And he would share these Bible verses with me. And I reluctantly went home and took the Bible that my grandpa had given me years earlier and started looking up those Bible verses. Turns out there's nothing about football in there. (laughs) But what I would see in Jesus, in the Jesus that those verses were referring to, shaped me profoundly. And they got me curious. And that curiosity kept going until one day I was at ditch school, was hanging out with some friends, and I picked up one friend on my shoulder. We were wrestling around, doing stupid stuff. Another friend dives at my legs. I put my hand out to catch myself and just snap my elbow. So I can't play football anymore. Identity's lost. My life begins to spiral. I get depressed. I'm drinking daily. Drop out of school altogether. At first, I'm asking big questions about life, but then I'm just kind of concluding it's all meaningless. I'm sitting there wasting time in front of an AOL instant messenger. And I get a message from the young Mariah Carey, who's now in Oklahoma. And she starts talking about how Jesus has had this impact in her life. And I'm telling her about the problems in my life, and she starts putting scripture on this on the screen and telling me about this unexpected king who entered into her life. And as she's sharing the gospel with me, some things began to click. And all these other moments that seemed like these insignificant moments were coming together. I thought about the moment when I first experienced the peace of God sitting in that park begging God to bring my stepdad home. I thought about the people like the Hanson brothers who seemed to have something different about them as they carried the presence of the peace of Christ. I thought about Mr. Williams who showed me a glimpse of the fatherly care in the midst, in the absence of a fatherly figure. I thought about the Bible verses shared by Terrell Suggs and how they seemed to have a clue to something different, something distinct, and now it's making sense as she is sharing about Jesus on the screen. In the fall of 1998, sitting in front of a computer screen, I made a decision that would actually change my life. I said that Jesus that she's talking about, that my grandpa was talking about, that Terrell was talking about, 
that Mr. Williams seemed to know is the Jesus that I need to follow. He is the king worthy of everything. He is the one who can give me forgiveness. He's the one who can restore and make things right. And from that moment, it set off a ripple effect of transformation and shalom, not just with me, but my group of friends in Chandler, Arizona. We experienced the nearness of God and the love of God. A father in the midst of fatherlessness, healing in areas of brokenness, forgiveness, reconciliation, and it changed the trajectory of all of our lives. Shalom, peace brought to a little part of Chandler. How does God bring peace to the city? I don't know. But I do know that there's a part of the city, a little pocket of Chandler in the late 90s, where the unexpected king showed up in an unexpected place and used some unexpected people for shalom. And how did he do it? He put together a team of a devastated middle-aged man and a landscape architect from Chandler, Arizona. Three blonde brothers with the last name Hanson. An English teacher who looked like Andre 3000. An NFL defensive lineman. A girl who was sad but carried a slight resemblance to Mariah Carey. And not just the people on this, this list, but the list extends to the people in this room. How does God bring peace to the city? Through people like Julian and Vina Benford and AJ and Penny Carrillo. Maybe not on my list, but on somebody's list as the Prince of Peace is moving into all of these places and sending us there as conduits of his peace to announce the gospel, to love our neighbors, to seek the flourishing of overlooked places. How does God bring shalom to the city? He uses unexpected people like shepherds and English teachers and the person that you see in the mirror every day. How does God bring peace to the city? He works through unexpected places like Bethlehem and basketball courts in the neighborhood that you live in. How does God bring peace to the city? He works through an unexpected king who showed up as a baby in a manger and ended up on a cross. And through his obscure and unexpected ways is the one who has conquered us by his profound love. And why we are here today to sing along with the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the events that unfolded uh, 2,000 years ago in overlooked obscurity that have changed all of our lives. And God, for those in here who don't know you as the king, we pray that today would be a day that they, that they see you and know you. For those of us who do, we pray that you would lead us into the overlooked places where you are at work in our city and that you would bring 
your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a moment now to just spend some time praying and responding and reflecting. So go ahead, feel free to close your eyes, get comfortable, and I just want to lead you through a time of uh, prayer. First of all, as you, as you sit there and pray, ask God to bring to mind some of the people that he used to reveal himself to you. Who are the people in your story? Think about them and spend some time just thanking God for those people. I'll give you a moment. Now take a moment to pray about what are the places, the overlooked places that God wants you to to see. Spend some time in silence and just see what the Spirit brings to the surface. take a moment to pray for folks that we're partnering with with AZ Reach. We're going to throw a picture on the screen here. They're operating in all these, um, these high schools, mentoring, discipling. Our friend Juan helps lead that. Also currently planting a church in South Phoenix. Take some time to to pray for them and the mentoring and the Bible studies and the church plant that they are engaged in. God, we thank you for... the many ways that we don't even see that you are at work in our lives and in the lives of others through us. We pray for your kingdom to come on earth at Chavez High School in South Mountain, in Tempe, in all of our neighborhoods, in the places that are overlooked that you're sending us to, that it would come on earth as it is in heaven, that you would bring a taste of your kingdom and that people would see you as a king. And we pray now as we worship and sing that you would grip our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue to sing to God and worship. Let's continue. If you need prayer, we have people on either side of the room who would love to pray for you. And let's come forward and take communion, remembering Christ and the blood that was shed through the cup and remembering his body given to us through the bread. Let's respond now together. Let's stand.